Well, we've been looking at, uh, for a while, the theme, I've called it anyway, Christ our Savior. And, and we began really at the beginning, which is in Genesis, and we've looked at the fall of man, the curse and the consequences of that fall that are a part of the world and explain the world to us that we live in. We considered very broadly and briefly the promise that God gave that he would undo the work of Satan, that he would crush him on the head, that he would reverse the curse, he would remove uh, at one final day all that is to us now a burden. And he fulfilled all of that in Christ. And so that is one of the great themes that runs throughout all of Scripture. This unfolding progression of God fulfilling his promise to crush Satan on the head, to restore everything that was lost in the garden. And so there's many ways to look at that, and we'll look at that in another way this morning, namely our fellowship with God. But it's important, or at least helpful, to talk about this, the way this kind of came together here at the beginning of the year, because this is the time of year that a lot of us, maybe you, maybe not, tend to set goals for this new year, tend to set sort of these markers of what you want to attain in this new year, and there's a variety of goals that we set. Some people want to exercise more and lose weight. Anybody want to raise your hand? If that We can keep you accountable. Oh, no. Tom, you don't need to lose weight. You've got more muscle than most of us. But we set goals of things we want to attain. Maybe things we want to read or study. Maybe uh, personal goals of just ways we want to grow in knowledge or relationships or with family, work, friends, hobbies, travel, savings, and so on and so forth. So we set all kinds of goals. Often, this as you know, you might see all the exercise equipment uh, commercials that are on TV. Uh, those goals generally don't last very long, a lot of them. They kind of come and go once the emotion uh, goes away. But there is one goal that we should have every year and that I would encourage us to set this year, and that is namely that goal of growing in our knowledge of God, growing in our fellowship with Him, growing in our experience of eternal life. And that is really what we were saved for. Jesus said, if you'll remember, in John 17, 3, in his prayer to the Father, this is eternal life. Could you say it with me? That we might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's why we're saved. That's what he brought to us, is this knowledge. We are enfolded or engrafted into this eternal relationship of the Father and the Son and the Spirit to enjoy an intimacy of love and fellowship Uh, That will be ours for all of eternity. And so that should be what we ask God to excite in our heart and to pursue this year. As a matter of fact, the very goal of the gospel is to have this fellowship with God and to walk with Him in holiness. John said in 1 John 1, 3, that in his proclamation of the gospel, it is so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father And with his son, Jesus Christ, these things we write so that your joy may be complete. And then if we have fellowship with him, we walk in that same light that God is in. So we need to, I would suggest then that you set as a personal goal above all else this year to grow in your knowledge of God. And whatever that might entail. To live this year in light of redemption in a way that you've never lived before. To live in light of reality. To live in light of the fact that Christ has atoned for our sin. That he's defeated death. That he's risen from the grave. That he has ascended to the Father. That he has given us his spirit. 
that he sustains us by the power of his word and by that spirit, that he's bringing us safely home to our eternal dwelling in his presence forever, that he is sanctifying us and molding and shaping us through every trial, through every difficulty, through every blessing that we experience in this life to be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ in character, in thinking, in attitude, and in actual obedience. That he truly is working in this world, forming and building his church with all of the chaos that we see around us, particularly in our political system and in our nation and in the world, the uncertainty for so many people, the suffering of many of our brethren around the world, the... The doctrine that seems to get lighter and lighter of those who profess the name of Christ as we see and experience all of these things around us. We live in light of the fact that Christ is still building his church, that his truth will stand, that it will not fail, it doesn't change, and he will not fail to bring about all of his purposes that he is designed to accomplish in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're not moved about by sort of every political wind. It certainly affects us. We do have a response to it. But that is not the ultimate reality for us as Christians. And so we want to have that attitude, and I'm praying for this attitude in myself, to increase of Paul who says, this one thing I do. He presses on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That is the goal to which we as believers have been called. It is what we want to attain to, and it is what we should pursue. And that's important because it's easy to get distracted with a great many other things. And as I mentioned, this isn't merely a goal for the new year. This is a goal of our lives as Christians. This is what we were saved for. The very goal of God in creation was to create a people who bear his image, who are to share fellowship with him forever, to live in harmony with him and with one another and to rule and reign with him on his creation. It's what he's working towards. It's what was lost in the garden, but it's always what God has been working towards in his reestablishing all that was lost because of human sin. So we looked at some of it at the beginning of Genesis with the death of Abel being murdered by his brother Cain. Another son was born in the place of Abel, namely Seth. Seth had a son named Enosh, and with the birth of Enosh, men again to begin to call upon the name of the Lord. That's speaking there of relationship. We have Enoch, who is mentioned as walking with God. And as the fruit of his relationship with God, which had a unique closeness to it, apparently, he is taken up. He didn't even experience the normal course of death that everyone else did. But that is what God is always working towards. Abraham was called the friend of God and met with him face to face in the tent. God moved towards Israel to live among his people. He gave them the tabernacle, the temple, the priesthood, everything to draw them into fellowship with himself, to be near to them. It was the heart of the Old Testament saint to say the nearness of God is my good. It is certainly the heart of the New Testament saint. In everything that God is doing in this world, it is to reestablish what was lost in the garden. It is to reestablish fellowship with men. Through a people whom he would draw to himself. Now, as I mentioned before, Genesis 3.15 is often called the proto-evangel. In other words, the, the first preaching of the gospel in scripture. That, that there is a seed who would come of the woman who would crush Satan on the head. I was doing some reading this week and something totally unrelated to this. 
And somebody else made a comment that I, I don't ever recall reading before. But really, he said the proleptic, or in other words, this anticipatory uh, promise of the gospel was really seen in, in the point he was making in Genesis 2.24 when it says the man and the woman would be joined and they would become one flesh. And that is a fair point because that is the very picture of God's covenant intimacy with his people throughout all of Scripture. What marriage pictures in unity and oneness is what God designed to reflect his covenant love for his people, for Israel, but ultimately to the church. Intimate, close, and loving relationship and fellowship. So this morning, what I want to briefly consider is God's work of restoring that fellowship with men. Reestablishing what was lost in paradise and moving us to an even greater experience of this paradise and this fellowship and this union with God, this reuniting of earth and heaven together. And that's ultimately what our hearts long for. Would you agree, you would answer this to yourself, with Augustine's famous statement, you, you may have heard it, it's one of many of ours favorite. He says at the beginning of his confessions, which is essentially an explanation of his own testimony of coming to Christ, he says, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Have you heard that? Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Why? Because our hearts weren't made to have rest anywhere outside of fellowship with God and a knowledge with him. And praise God that this is what he works towards to restore And so that's what we want to consider this morning. And we'll do it under three simple headings. And that is paradise lost, a loss of fellowship, which I'll mention just briefly because we've covered this. A paradise reestablished, a renewing and restoring of this fellowship that God began with Israel and with the tabernacle and with the temple. And then paradise regained, a restoration of this fellowship and a fullness that we can only long for now, but is in fact a reality. For all who belong to him. So first, let's just consider paradise lost. When we read Genesis 1 and 2, we read this idyllic conditions in which God created man, in which God created all things. And at the center of that, beyond the beauty and the glory of creation, and indeed Paul reminds us that all creation is a reflection of his glory, at the centerpiece of that is his creation of man, who was made in his image, who received commands from him, Commands to multiply and fill the earth, but commands to rule as his co-regents, his representatives on the earth. And these were to live in a fellowship with him. We see that just intimated when God was walking in the garden and the sound, they heard the sound of him. Of course, that's after the fall and they hid, but that clearly was a condition before the fall that they enjoyed previously before sin entered into this world. And so the creation was marked by holiness, that it was without sin. It was an untested holiness, as it's sometimes called. It is a holiness that wasn't permanent, but it was created without sin. It was a beautiful world. It was undisturbed and undiminished. Everything that God created was in the fullness of its fruitfulness and of its provision and of its beauty and of its glory. It had purpose There was the joyful purpose of man working along together with God, as we mentioned, to uh, tend the garden, to harvest all that the earth would produce, to rule and to reign under God on the earth. There was purpose, beauty, holiness, 
And as I mentioned, fellowship, joyful intimacy, harmony and peace with God and with one another and creation. And this, this peace and this harmony really was God's goal at the, or at the very heart of God's goal from the beginning. One has captured this well. He said this, The goal of creation of redemption is communion with God. This communion finds its first expression at the culmination of the creation narratives where the Lord God was present with His people in paradise, the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve could enjoy God's presence. They could walk with God, commune with God, and serve God with undiminished capacity in their garden sanctuary. Communion with the living God is at the heart of all worship, and where God is present with His people is a sanctuary. So the garden was essentially a sanctuary. It was a unique sphere of all of the earth where God uniquely communed with His people. And as we note, though, it was not what to last for long. How long, who knows, but it certainly isn't long in the, the way that it unfolds in Scripture. Sin entered into the world, and with that sin, alienation from God, which was cemented as God expelled Adam and Eve from the garden and away from the tree of life with no possibility of re-entrance in man's present condition. And so Genesis 3 23 through 24 says this, The Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden. He drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Lest man would have access to this tree and live forever in a fallen condition. As much sadness as death brings, rightly it brings, because it is a separation that we weren't originally created to experience, it is in fact, in reality, a mercy as well. It means that there is an end to the miserable conditions that we have to endure here under sin. To have access to the tree of life in the miserable conditions of sin would in fact be a punishment and not a blessing. And so there is a certain mercy even there. And yet, what is signified is that man no longer has access to God. God does not dwell with men as he did at the beginning. Now, in place of holiness, there is corruption. Where there was beauty, there is a creation marred with difficulty and destruction. Where there was harmony of purpose between God and man, there is now enmity and even hatred and hostility. And the fellowship of joyful intimacy is replaced by alienation so that Paul could say of unbelievers that they are separate from Christ, having no hope and without God in this world. So the paradise was lost. The paradise was lost. But thankfully that wasn't the final state. Paradise was also restored and pictured in God's work through the nation of Israel. So what was lost by sin, God began to restore. But yet, under the new conditions of the fall, it was not yet and would not ever be yet the full glory that would come. The beginning of this restoration took place in the form of the tabernacle. The tabernacle. Of course, we looked at how God called Israel. He preserved the promise of the seed. He called Abraham, he formed him into a nation, and he gave him a promise that through him all the uh, people of the earth shall be blessed. 
He promised that he would form a nation from his seed, and he did with Israel while they were in Egypt. Once a mighty people, he delivered them with a mighty hand, displaying his glory, and he brought them into the wilderness and entered into a covenant with them known as the Mosaic Covenant. This was a major move forward in God's program of fulfilling his promise. But at the heart of all that God was doing in the nation of Israel is this, and it's recorded for us by Moses in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 through 9. He said this, Let them construct a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell among them. According to all that I am going to show you is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. That reality is at the center of the whole entirety of the book of Exodus and really the history of God's dealings with the nation of Israel. That he is a God who would dwell among people again on the earth. Some trace that out through a theology of presence and it's all centered and flows out of this divine reality that God would again dwell with men. Through a nation. And he would do that so that he might reestablish and restore this fellowship that was lost. Now, what's interesting is God had already established his presence with Israel, of course, the great deeds when he delivered them out of Egypt, but at Mount Sinai. But at Mount Sinai, God displayed his presence in terror and in majesty and in darkness and with threats. So that the people trembled even to be near the mountain of Sinai. And he said that he did this so that he would establish fear in their hearts that they would not sin against him. It was to establish his holiness among men. And so the people, you'll remember that they asked Moses to go up to the mountain because they were themselves too afraid to be that near to God in light of their sin. But God's establishment of his presence and the promise that's inherent in Exodus 25 is not an establishment of his presence to cause fear, but it is to restore fellowship. It is an abiding presence. It was a remaining presence. And it was the means at which God would both establish and maintain and perpetuate his fellowship with a people whom he called near to himself. And so for the believing Jew, the regenerate Jew, the temple was at the heart of their longings for God. The temple, first the tabernacle, then the temple, was at the heart and at the very center of their longings for God. Because it's where God's presence uniquely dwelled. Now you'll remember this, let me remind you. It's reflected so beautifully in the heart of the psalmist in Psalm 84. I'll just read it to you. He says, How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts! My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. He speaks of the jealousy even of the bird that gets to go up into the rafters of the temple simply because it gets to be near to God. He later says, A day in your courts is better than a thousand outside, and I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Why? Because he was enamored with God. He loved him. His heart longed for him, and that centered on his presence in the temple. In Psalm 73, you'll remember the psalmist when he was 
lost his spiritual senses and he was envious of the wicked, the turning point came when he entered into the sanctuary of God. So in Psalm 73, he says this in verse 17. Well, verse 16, he says, When I pondered to understand this, that is the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous, it was troubling in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God and then I perceived their end. It reset his perspective. It changed the way that he viewed everything. And so that he went from envying the unrighteous to saying, Whom have I in heaven but you and beside you I desire nothing on earth. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. Now the key idea, again, in all of this is that God is restoring what was lost in Eden. Eden, the Garden of Eden, remains in the heart of men. Because that's what He created us for. That's what He has redeemed us for. But now outside of that wonderful promise or with that wonderful promise and reality of God establishing his presence again with men, as much as it is an expression of his love, it is also a reality that God who is establishing this presence again with men is the Holy One of Israel. And so he is the same one in the tabernacle inviting men to fellowship who was at the mountain causing them to fear to come near. He is the same Holy One who stood as king over the flood when he destroyed all of humanity save eight because of their sin. He is the same Holy One who caused Isaiah, one of the most righteous men in Israel, as you remember, when he entered into his presence to say, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. So there's this dual reality. There is an invitation to joy. There is the longing for the presence in the heart of God's people. And there's also the reality that this one who dwells among them is a holy God who hates sin. There is the paradox. And so God's establishing this presence, but under the conditions of the fall. And so it was a mediated presence. It was a mediated presence. It wasn't the full experience, but it was mediated through God's establishment of the priesthood and the sacrifices and the temple. And so he says, again, in verse 9 of Exodus 25, let them construct a sanctuary according to all that I am going to show you. All that I'm going to show you. The sanctuary was a holy space. It was a holy place. It was a holy environment out of all of the places of the earth. The idea of the holiness of it is that it was separate. And it was separate to be uniquely devoted to God. The sanctuary was a place, again, separated from all of the world. Dedicated exclusively to God's worship. It was marked off by a fence that surrounded it. There were walls that surrounded the temple. It could only be entered through the gates. And nothing that was allowed through those gates that was unclean. It was a holy place. It was a holy sphere. And although the whole area was a sphere set apart to God and dedicated to the ceremonial expression of worship, there were, as you entered into the tabernacle and into the temple area, increasing levels of the intensity of this holiness of God and intensity of nearness to His presence. 
So if you were a Jew in the Old Testament, you would enter into the gates. In the tabernacle, you would enter into the courtyard area. There you would find the altar where the priest would offer up the sacrifices brought by the worshiper. You would find what was called the sea, a big basin of water. You would find behind that the tabernacle structure, or the, the place where God dwelled in the most holy place. And so you would move in through the door of this tabernacle and you would enter a room. And within this room, which was completely dark except for the light of a candle stand, you would find the bread of the presence off to one side and then directly in front of you, you would find an altar of incense just before a veil. Behind that veil was the Holy of Holies. Into the tabernacle structure itself, only the priests were allowed to enter. And into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest was allowed to enter once a year on the pain of death. And so there was, in the very design of the tabernacle and of the temple, in the very entirety of the physical structure and the prescribed worship, There was a design to demonstrate that God is near and yet there is a separation. There is a separation. And there needs to be because He is a holy God dwelling among a sinful people. And yet though there is separation, there is invitation for men to enter into His presence. And there was a picture that greater things were yet to come. There was a greater thing, picture of greater things that are yet to come. One noted this. What, a, what was the point of such a demand for precise adherence to a revealed design? Speaking here of the tabernacle. It was to create a longing for and a hope of heaven in the hearts of God's people. A desire to live in His presence forever. That was the design of it. That they should have seen that and it should have produced... In the hearts of God's people, an ever-increasing hunger to have unbroken fellowship with Him. But what I want to point out one thing with that is that the entire design of the tabernacle and later of the temple, the entire intent of God of dwelling among His people was to picture the new creation. To picture the new creation. That God, in the midst of a world that was fallen and a first creation that was now corrupted by sin, God was reminding them that He's creating something new. That He's creating something new. He's creating something new to replace what was lost. And so in the creation or the establishment of the tabernacle, there really is a parallel with God's work of creation in Genesis 1. Let me just give you a few of those broadly. In Genesis 1, we read that God spoke and it was so. God said and it came to be. In the tabernacle, that same pattern is established as God commanded each detail of the tabernacle and how it was to be put together. And Moses repeats that it was done just as the Lord commanded. In Genesis 1, we read at the beginning of creation that the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters and that the Spirit in perfect unity with God's command shaped and formed and molded and created this created world. The Spirit 
so empowered and filled the builders of the tabernacle in the same way to form and construct the temple, building it according to God's instructions. As a matter of fact, he says of two men who were to be key chief designers in the tabernacle, those who would give artistic designs for work in gold and silver and bronze and in the cutting of stones and the carving of wood, Moses notes that they were filled with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all kinds of craftsmanship. In the hearts of all who are skillful, I have put skill that they may make all that I have commanded. As the Spirit of God shaped this world, so the Spirit of God, through these men design, or called out by God, gave shape to the tabernacle. When creation was completed, God looked at all that he had done and said it was very good and then he blessed the seventh day. And in that same pattern at the completion of the tabernacle, it says that Moses inspected all the work and saw that they've done it as the Lord had commanded and Moses blessed them and then commanded that you shall sanctify it that day and it shall be holy. Those are intentional parallels. God was creating something new. God was restoring and establishing what was lost in the first creation and making it new. This is the hope and the longing of his people. And now he was commanding them, unlike in the garden where he told Adam and Eve to go out and to be removed from this presence, now with the tabernacle and with the temple, he's inviting them to come in, to be a partakers of this new creation to taste again of what was lost in the garden, to be a people with whom he has drawn near and who would draw near to him in faith and obedience and holiness. And through Israel, that invitation was to extend to all of the world. As the prophet said in Isaiah 45, turn to me all of the ends of the earth and be saved. However, even with all of those glories, the reality of human sin would make that never a full reality. Never a full reality. And so what was the end of this glorious temple where God reestablished his fellowship with men? At the end, it was destruction. And just as Adam and Eve in the garden fell and were cast out of God's presence, so the very same thing happened to the nation of Israel. Their sin piled on through the years, eventually culminating in God expelling them from the land sending them into exile and destroying the very temple that he designed and gave to them. It ended with failure on the part of man. It ended with their defilement of the good things that God had done. And even in the second temple, after they returned from the land, it was never had the full glory of the first one and God's presence never manifest itself as it had in the tabernacle when he filled it with glory. And in the temple, with Solomon's temple, and he filled it with glory. And so all of this then was designed to say, this is not the end. There is a future day yet coming. But these things are pointing to something greater. Pointing to something greater. As a matter of fact, he says in Hebrews 5, that these things are a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, speaking of the tabernacle. They were a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. They were never an end in themselves, but they were always pointing to a greater end. But they knew that as long as the outer tabernacle stood, as long as there was the reality of sin, as long as the priesthood was needed, that the final way into God's presence had not yet 
been revealed. So how would that happen? Well, let's look at the last one. That paradise regained. Fellowship with God restored. So the end of Israel's history is tragedy. The end of the history of man on their own is always tragedy. So human sin would, would seem to have annulled God's work of a new creation. But in fact, it set the stage for God's next step in bringing about this new creation. And that was the coming of the Son and God in flesh. And so we read these wonderful words at the beginning of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and then this. And the Word became flesh, and dwelt, or tabernacled among us, and we beheld His glory. You know, we're so used to the Gospel on our side of God's redemption, and God's unfolding plan of redemption. But the nation of Israel should stand to us as a great reminder that if God were to leave us on our own, if the fulfillment of the promise were in any way dependent on us, we would end exactly as Israel did in tragedy and darkness. But God is faithful to His promise. God did keep His promise. And with the appearance of Christ, God demonstrated that he did not abandon humanity or the work of the new creation, but instead joined himself to humanity through the sons to the son to establish the grounds of the new creation. And at the heart of this again is God establishing fellowship with men. And there's many ways we could look at this, but that is the one that is at the heart of it to establish Relationship, fellowship with men. It's the very idea of the covenant. The very idea of the covenant. And it's the core of God's restoration of all things in Christ. And so Christ comes. He tabernacles among men in a unique way. He is the presence of God once again among men. No longer in a building. Now in a person in some mysterious way, the God-man. And that he replaced the temple, Jesus makes clear in John chapter 2. And he says this, in verse 18, he says, The Jews said to him, What do you do for us as a... Uh, to show you show us... What do you do to show us your authority for doing these things when he cast people out of the temple? Jesus said in verse 19, Destroy this temple, this sanctuary... And in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said to him, It took 46 years to build this temple. You will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the sanctuary, the temple of his body. Never could that have been something conceived by any human being. That God's presence could be bound and embodied and reside in a man. And yet with Christ, that's exactly what it was. Can you imagine how that would have sounded to the ears of the Jews where the tabernacle, in their case, the temple was at the very center of their religion, of their relationship with God. And Jesus is saying, I am that temple, essentially. I am the presence of God. Not this building, which you have defiled, but me, who is un." Defiled. He was the embodied presence of God in a way that, it, that his presence replaced that which was pictured in the temple. It was now a reality. 
And it was so as well because he had the Spirit without measure, John would later say. So in Christ, we have the fullness of the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In Christ, we had the fullness of the presence of the Spirit, whom he had without measure. And in Christ, we had the full expression of the Son of God in humanity. The divine triune God was all present in the person of Christ. And it was God reestablishing his fellowship and accomplishing his design to restore men to what was lost. It was not a temporary manifestation like the temple, the physical temple that would be destroyed. As a matter of fact, the very temple that they were looking at when Jesus said that would soon be destroyed in 70 AD. God would decimate it. But the true temple would not be destroyed. And all of that was a shadow and a picture. It needed a greater reality, a greater significance to be all that God intended. And that's what it was. Just listen to some of the writer of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 9, it says this, after describing the elements in the tabernacle and its cleansing on the Day of Atonement by the high priest, he says this, The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed why the outer tabernacle is still standing. It is a symbol for the present time. It is a symbol For the present time. But when Christ appeared, verse 11, as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And he has attained, in verse 12, an eternal redemption. It was necessary for the copies of the things in heaven, verse 23, to be cleansed with these, that is, his blood, his sacrifice. The heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Everything that was designed in the tabernacle and the temple was a shadow. Christ is the reality. They were cleansed symbolically through the blood of bulls and goats. Christ cleansed with his own blood and entered into the presence of God for us. Do you realize that an Old Testament Jew, even David himself, the king of the nation, could not get up one morning, feel really close to God, and walk into the Holy of Holies? David would have died. He did not have access to God in that way. And throughout the entirety of human history, even among the nation of Israel, men did not have access to God. And yet in Christ, that access is made even more wonderful than it could be imagined. He says in verse 10, chapter 19, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus... Again, the holy place is where you would have been put to death if you tried to enter and you weren't a priest and if you were unclean and you weren't cleansed. But we have confidence to enter the holy place. And what was the significance of the holy place? It wasn't merely a room. It was to say with that level of intensity of nearness to God, His presence. But now through the blood of Jesus We have a new and a living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart 
in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You have access to God. And you have access to God in a way that we can't even comprehend fully. And it's a, it's a foretaste of what is to come. Jesus said in John 14, speaking of his going away and his sending the Spirit, he says this. He says in verse 20, In that day you will know that I am my Father, and you and me and I and you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And listen, we will come to him and make our abode in him. We will come and make our abode in him. In verse 2 of chapter 14, that What's translated dwelling place is the same word. It is to say that in Christ, you as a believer, what is offered to all who trust in him is a kind of intimacy and fellowship and union and nearness to God that is not something we have to walk somewhere to enter into but is a reality in the fullness of such that it could say that He dwells in us. That His abode is in us. And so now, in Christ, we as the church are the temple of God. Because the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ, communicates the presence of God to us, and as His body, we are the temple of God on the earth. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple, literally a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you? That speaks there of nearness. It speaks here of the need to be holy. But that's the nearness of God. Again, The high priest, once a year, and only on pain of death if he came in an unworthy manner, could enter into the holy of holies, the holy place, the presence of God. And Jesus is saying, no, not only do you have to go to the temple, you are the temple. God dwells in you. I dwell in you in a way even more full than what the temple was. Unlike the Old Testament in which the Spirit dwelled with the nation regenerated believers and empowered them for various works of service, but he did not indwell inside the holy, the saint in the Old Testament. And so when Jesus says these words in John 14, he says he's going to send the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Now that's actually a unique sense. There is, there is in a broad, broad way to understand that, him saying that he abides with you, the Holy Spirit, in terms of how he abided with the Old Testament through the temple. He was with the nation of Israel. But his words more specifically here are to say this, that the Holy Spirit abides with you, how? In me. In me. 
who has the fullness of the Spirit. Me, whom you have walked with, has been walking with the Spirit. The Spirit whom the world has not known, you have known. He says that as well. They don't see Him or know Him. Who? The Spirit. But you know Him. Why? Because you know me. And soon, it's going to be even greater. You're not merely going to walk next to me on the road. You're not going to merely walk next to me as I heal and do my miracles and, and show these works of God in me. In fact, He will be in you, in you. And you yourself will be a part of the new temple of God. That's what He promised in Ezekiel, that the Spirit would be in us. Of course, this is a call for holiness. You want to think what will help you in your sanctification? What will help you love Christ more and want to be holy and obey His commandments? Lay hold of the fact that God Himself indwells in you. Lay hold of the fact that God, who at the establishment of the tabernacle, when Nadab and Abihu came in Leviticus 10 and offered an unworthy sacrifice to God, he struck them dead and told Aaron, don't you dare weep for them. That's the God who dwells you, beloved. That's the God who tells us to take sin seriously and holiness seriously. That's the God who invites you to draw near to him, to have fellowship with him, to walk with him. And we as the church collectively are that new temple. And it has to do with fellowship and it has to do with access and nearness. Listen to this. Paul says this in Ephesians. He came and he preached peace to you who are far away, peace to those who are near. Listen. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple or sanctuary in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. That's what God is doing among us on Sunday morning. That's what God is doing in His church globally and locally. He is building us into a more holy dwelling place of God. He indwells us. What would... They have experienced in terms of nearness of God in the Old Testament as they entered into the Holy of Holies. Well, it's less than what we experience in our own entering into the presence of God by the Spirit and as we come together. Incredible realities. This is what God is restoring, this fellowship with men. That's who we are. And yet, as wonderful as this is, it's not the full restoration that we long for We have the first fruits of the Spirit. We have a taste of the good things to come. We have a taste of the intimacy that we will have with Him forever. If you're a believer, you do. But if you're a believer, you're also frustrated by the fact that it doesn't last. That those times of intimacy with God, they come and they go. They're temporary. You want to hold on to them if you can. You want to hang on to them. You want to live in that place of joy You want to live in that place of trust and faith. You want to live in that place of nearness. You want to live with the same hatred of sin that sometimes we feel, but too often we compromise with and become comfortable with. Too often we rationalize 
our behavior and our attitudes and our words and our speech and the things that we love and the things that we neglect that we should not. And that bothers us and it should bother us and the Spirit convicts us and the Spirit brings us love to turn us back to Christ. And so even as the Old Testament Jew knew this is wonderful that God's with us in the temple, this isn't everything, this isn't everything that I want. Every Jew there wishes they could have just run right into the Holy of Holies. But they couldn't. They couldn't. Every believer now wishes they could just live in that full experience of the fellowship restored with God. But we can't. We can't. Because there's still the reality of sin. And that is the hope that we read this morning. That's the hope of heaven. When heaven, in Revelation 21 and 22, referring to heaven here as that final state of the new heavens and the new earth, that new creation that was begun in the temple, that new creation reality that was established in Christ is still yet future, but it is coming. It is coming. And so God restored and will restore in the new heavens and new earth in a way that was more glorious than Adam and Eve experienced. Do you realize you have a fellowship with God that is deeper and more real than Adam and Eve, even before sin. They weren't united to him in Christ. They didn't have the fullness of the Spirit, as we do. But we do. And we'll realize something even greater than Adam and Eve had. Sometimes we think, I wonder what that would have been like to be in the garden. And sure, there's curiosity there, but I'll tell you what, what we have coming to us as a reality is far greater than anything that was in the garden. Far more beautiful, far more glorious, far more wonderful, far more delightful, far more joy-producing, far more holy, far more lovely, far more grand, far more glorious in every way than what was experienced even by Adam and Eve in the garden. And God specifically ties in this future reality to what was anticipated in the first chapters of Genesis. And so he tells us there's a tree of life is there in chapter 22, verse 1. Or verse 2, excuse me. That's for the healing of the nations, always producing fruit. He tells us that there is the marriage of the bride and the church in verse 9. Come here and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Which Paul has already established to us has only a secondary import in terms of human Marriage, it's actually pointing to the oneness of flesh, the oneness and unity that we share with Christ that will be realized in this final day. There is a river flowing from the throne of God as the river that flowed around the Garden of Eden. There's elements here of the temple where the temple was marked by glory and precious stones and gates and gold and beauty. So in this new world, there are gates that have the names of the nation of Israel, the tribes, and are also adorned with the names of the apostles. It's marked by precious stones and gold, this new temple that is no longer meant for its same purpose before, but now in its full intended reality. He says there's no longer any need for that kind of temple because the Lord God is the temple. His presence is now with men in a way that could only be hoped for before 
And so he says this in verse 21, or chapter 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, Behold, the tabernacle or the sanctuary of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be among them. That's Exodus 25. This is what God was promising. This is what he was establishing then, but it will be ours in the future. It is a reuniting of heaven and earth together. The separation forever removed. The curse forever removed. He says in verse 3 of 22, there will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his bondservants will serve him. The intimacy that was lost now that sin and the curse is removed will be restored even more than what could have ever been imagined. We will see his face and his name will be on our foreheads. What does that mean? It speaks of intimacy. It speaks of ownership. It speaks of God saying, you are mine. You are mine. You belong to me. You are the one I've purchased. You are the one I've set my love on. You are the one I will abide with forever in the most intimate fellowship. As sons and daughters, he says in verse 7 of 21, he who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. We will enjoy an intimacy with the Father that is paralleled to the intimacy that the eternal divine Son has had with the Father from all eternity. These are glorious, glorious promises. Everything's overturned. This is our hope. This is what we long for. This is what we look forward to. And what is the point of all this? Well, there's some, a lot. But it's this, is to know that this is the end for which we were created and we were redeemed. This is the end. This is what God has promised to us. We will be brought into this glorious environment, this eternal fellowship and union with God. And it should be our greatest goal and resolution this year and every year to grow in our understanding of it and intimate fellowship with the Lord and in obedient hope. One said this, it is the vision of glory that inspires the people of God to persevere in faith even at the cost of their lives should that become necessary. When believers fix their thoughts on things that are eternal, then they are able to keep everything in proper perspective. And that's why this is important. Because if this isn't what is shining the light on our sense of reality and our view of the world and our view of the selves, then everything won't be in proper perspective. And so commit yourself this year to grow in this. Commit yourself to study the Bible more, to spend more time with the Lord in prayer, to meditate more deeply on His Word, to serve Him more faithfully, living not for this world, but for the world to come and the reward that is in His hand. These are our New Year's resolutions. This is our end and our hope. I pray that you, with me, are faithful by the enabling of the Spirit to grow in these ways. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you for the way that you give us so many encouragements. You don't leave us merely to fend on our own, but you give us the church. You give us the brethren. You give us your word. You give us your spirit. You give us hope. You give us encouragements that are inward, encouragements that only believers know. 
I pray that we would grow in holiness together and holy in holy fellowship and obedience with to you. And Lord, I pray that those outside of this saving grace who love religion and even love Christians but don't yet know Christ, that you would change that and that you would bring them into this most intimate fellowship to know you in truth, to know you in glory, to know you as Savior, and to know you as the hope that you are in the hearts of all of your people. And I pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.